It feels like we're all being told to go on this diet, take that supplement. Ozempic will give you depression, but you know what'll cure that? Weed. Or you could try to balance your hormones. At Science Versus, we're like, what the f*** is going on? Forget the crap online and listen to Science Versus. Just the facts. Oh, and a bunch of stupid jokes. What is a ghost's favorite fruit? Booberries. That's Science VS. New season out on Spotify soon. Due to the graphic nature of this couple's crimes, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes discussions of murder and sexual situations that some people may find offensive. We advise extreme caution for children under the age of 13. Colin's stomach was in a knot. He had to talk to Hazel, and she wasn't answering his calls. Was she avoiding him? He needed to hear her say the words, it's time, before he went any further. He had to talk to her before his wife Leslie got home. Between calls to Hazel, he assembled the slide he and Leslie bought their son for his second birthday. However, he was also constructing a murder weapon in his garage. Still worrying over Hazel, Colin cut a baby bottle in half. He attached the bottle to a hose as he went over his plan in his head. It would be simple, a double homicide staged as a suicide pact. But none of it could happen without Hazel, and she wasn't answering the phone. This can't be put off, Colin thought. He didn't want to lose his nerve. Finally, Colin's phone rang. It was Hazel. She was ready. Hi, I'm Lainey Hobbs, and this is Crimes of Passion, a podcast original. The legal definition of a crime of passion is a murder that occurs in the throes of extreme emotion, leaving no time to reflect on the consequences. But in this show, we explore passionate crimes. How does a marriage progress from husband and wife to killer and victim, or killer and co-conspirator? If there's a thin line between love and hate, what manipulates our relationships into deadly results? Last week, we explored how an affair developed between Colin Howell and Hazel Buchanan. When the affair came to light, Colin came up with a deadly plan to fix all of their problems. This week, we'll walk through Colin's plan, the cover-up, and the trial that followed. At ParCast, we are grateful for you, our listeners. You allow us to do what we love. Let us know how we're doing. Reach out on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. And if you enjoyed today's episode, the best way to help is to leave a five-star review wherever you're listening. It really does help us. We also now have merchandise, Head to parcast.com slash merch for more information. In November of 1990, Colin Howell, a 31-year-old dentist in Northern Ireland, was caught having an affair with a 27-year-old married preschool teacher named Hazel Buchanan. They ended their six-month affair when they were found out. Colin's wife, 30-year-old Leslie Howell, agreed to marriage counseling as did Hazel's husband, 31-year-old police constable, Trevor. 
After four months of counseling, Colin and Hazel resumed their affair. Six weeks later, Colin planned the perfect murder. Leslie Howe spent Saturday, May 18, 1991, celebrating her son's second birthday alongside the rest of her family. After the party, Leslie ran a few errands and arrived home around 8 p.m. She poured a glass of wine. It was nearly the children's bedtime, but Colin was letting them run around. It was 10 p.m. before Colin finally tucked the children in for the night. The excitement of the birthday party and being up two hours past bedtime wore them out. At least they would sleep soundly through the night. Leslie fitted her headphones over her ears and popped her favorite gospel cassette into her Walkman. Lying back on the couch, she dozed off around 11. Colin watched as Leslie fell deeper and deeper into sleep. What follows is Colin's version of what happened that night. There are some points that have been contested by others. Shortly before midnight, Colin slipped into the garage. He placed the baby bottle end of the hose over the exhaust and ran the hose into the house. Thank goodness Leslie fell asleep on the sofa. The hose likely wouldn't have reached to the bedroom. Colin placed the hose on the couch, less than a foot away from Leslie's face. The quilt she had pulled up to her chin held the hose in place. He slipped back into the garage and started the car. Watching from the doorway, Colin waited. It was taking longer than he thought, as the room filled with the smell of exhaust. Still asleep, Leslie turned over. The hose was no longer leaking the poisonous gas directly to her face. Colin hurried across the room, grabbed the quilt, and pulled it over Leslie's head, creating a tent that he could fill with the gas. This woke Leslie up. Groggy from sleep and dizzy from the fumes, she tried to push the blanket away, but she couldn't. She called out her oldest son's name, Matthew, and then she fell quiet. Colin was shaken. The fumes were going to his head, and he went into the hallway to get some air. A few moments later, he checked if Leslie was still breathing. She was not. Though things had not gone as planned, he had succeeded in his first task of the night. Colin unhooked the hose from his exhaust pipe and put it in the back seat of the car. Then he opened the back hatch. He went back inside and changed Leslie out of her nightgown and into regular clothes. He then carried his wife's body to the car and put her in the rear. He covered her with a blanket and then placed his bicycle on top. He tossed a few family photographs and Leslie's Walkman into the car before slamming the hatch closed. These would be important props. Before leaving, Colin peeked into the children's bedrooms. They were all still asleep, unaware of what happened on the other side of the house. Then, Colin called Hazel. Hazel answered the phone before it could wake Trevor. Yes, Trevor was fast asleep. She had crushed the pills into the tuna fish sandwich he ate around nine. Colin reminded her to move Trevor's car to the street so he could back his car into the garage. He then made the drive across town to the Buchanan home with Leslie's body in tow. When Colin backed his car into the Buchanan garage, it was Hazel who opened the garage door for him. 
and when Colin entered the home to check that Trevor was asleep, it was Hazel who let him in. After confirming Trevor was asleep, Colin went to the garage and repeated what he had done at his own home. But again, things didn't go as easily as Colin had hoped. The hose slipped off the bed, and then Trevor woke up. Colin should have expected this. When he walked through the house the first time, he saw the sandwich Hazel had put the pills in. It was only half eaten. Colin rushed to the bed to try to pin Trevor down, as he had done so easily with Leslie. But Trevor fought back. However, Colin had the advantage. The room was dark, and Trevor had only just woken up. Colin managed to shove the end of the hose into Trevor's mouth, pin him on the bed under a blanket, and hold him there until he stopped fighting. On his way back out to the garage to turn off the car, Colin noticed a small bump on his forehead. Trevor must have hit him during the scuffle. That wasn't in the plan, but Colin would adapt. He was smart. Certainly, he was smarter than the police officer he would tell his story to. He'd come up with something. After Colin dressed Trevor and moved his body to the car trunk next to Leslie, Hazel entered the bedroom for the first time. She had avoided the scene until Colin took Trevor out of the house. Hazel threw open the window to air out the room and then gathered the bedding to wash it. Colin told her to cut up the hose and burn the pieces in her fireplace. The next part of the plan wasn't so clear. All Colin knew was he had to drive somewhere isolated to stage the suicide. The beach along Castle Rock seemed like a good idea, but was it isolated enough? And how would he cover up all the signs he was there? Something as small as footprints leading away from the car could derail the entire thing. As he drove, it hit him. Leslie's father's house was in Castle Rock, and it was still empty since Harry's recent death. With one quick stop to stash his bicycle in tall grass, Colin headed to Harry's house. He drove the car into the garage and shut the door. He pulled Trevor's body from the trunk and put him behind the wheel. He laid Leslie flat in the rear of the car. He tried to put her in a natural-looking position with the family photographs around her. He put her headphones over her ears and hit play. He could hear the gospel music playing as he attached the hose to the exhaust and fed it into the car window. Then, he started the car. The only problem was Trevor's knee. His body was slumped low in the driver's seat, and his knee was resting in the hinge of the open door. When Colin tried to close it, he couldn't. The narrow garage gave him little room to maneuver, and daybreak was approaching. Every minute he spent at the scene was a minute closer to being seen. Just leave it, he thought. It was too risky to take the time to reposition Trevor. He took one last look before he left the garage and walked to the beach where he recovered his hidden bicycle. He hopped on and rode home. Thankfully, the children were still asleep and the smell of the exhaust had left the house. Around 5.30 a.m., he called Hazel to rehearse their stories. Then Colin took out the note he had been saving for such an occasion. It was a note Leslie had written during one of her low points. She never gave it to him, but he found it anyway. 
it wasn't a suicide note, but it was close enough. He put the note on the kitchen floor. And then Colin Howell sat down and waited to report his wife missing. Coming up, Colin and Hazel continue the cover-up of their spouse's murders. Now back to the story. Around 8 o'clock a.m. on May 19, 1991, 31-year-old Colin Howell called the police to report his wife Leslie missing. He told them that she was in a bad state when she left the house. Was there a report of an accident? The constable on the other line assured him there wasn't. Then Colin called the hospital and asked the same question. No one matching Leslie's description had been brought in. Colin next called church elder Jim Flanagan to tell him that Leslie was missing. Colin was stuck home with the children, so he couldn't go look for her. As he appeared to rack his brain over where she could be, he realized she had keys to her father's house. That must be where she went. Jim agreed to go check. Jim didn't see anything at the home that indicated Leslie was there, so he drove to Colin's house to discuss what to do next. Colin showed Jim the note he had found on the floor of the kitchen. It read, Dear Colin, I'm just trying to go to sleep now. How long, I don't know. Thank you for your help over the past few days and for the good times in our marriage. I don't know what to say to you because I don't know how I feel, but I have seen that life goes on after a few weeks of pain. And let's face it, Colin, I am nothing in comparison to what you lost in the one you loved a while back. If I wake up in the morning, just let this be our secret. Leslie. Colin told Jim that he feared this was a suicide note. Jim left to go to church, and another church elder named Derek McCauley came to the house. Colin was agitated and confided in Derek that Trevor Buchanan had been to their house the night before. He and Trevor had a short physical altercation before Trevor left with Leslie. He pointed to the slight bump on his head as proof of the fight. Colin again remembered Leslie had keys to her father's house. He suggested Derek head there to look for Leslie. Derek entered the house at Castle Rock cautiously. He knew Trevor carried a gun, and he didn't know what he was walking into. But the house was empty. Derek went out the back door and crossed the yard to the garage. The door was locked, so he peered in the window. He could see the house car in the garage, but it didn't look like anyone was behind the wheel. So, it seemed Colin was right. Leslie had gone to her father's house, but she wasn't there now. When Derek arrived back at the Howe home, Colin was in disbelief. He had sent two people to the exact spot Leslie and Trevor were, and they both came back without having found them. But at least the car was spotted, so he had an excuse to push for a third visit to the house. Jim Flanagan agreed to go back to the house for a more thorough search, and he took an off-duty police officer with him. This time, they would look top to bottom and assure the distraught Colin that Leslie was not at the house. When they forced open the garage door, they were hit by the smell of exhaust. The car engine was off, having run out of gas. They first noticed Trevor, 
slumped low behind the wheel. When they opened the hatchback of the car, they saw Leslie's body, lying peacefully as though she was asleep. Family photos were scattered near her and she had headphones over her ears. The men notified the police and the pastor, who would inform Colin. In Northern Ireland at the time, religion was entrenched in both day-to-day life and the government, so it wasn't unusual for the pastor to take on a task like this. As Pastor Hansford told Colin that his wife had been found dead, he could hardly keep the shake out of his own voice. Colin, though, received the news stoically. Colin had seemed so distraught when Leslie was missing, but as he found out she was dead, he didn't even flinch. He must be in shock, they thought. Meanwhile across town, Pastor Hansford's wife broke the news to Hazel. Hazel immediately buried her face in her hands, but when she finally looked up a minute later, her eyes were dry. The funerals for Leslie and Trevor were held two days after the murders. In those two days, Pastor Hansford, unaware the affair had been rekindled already, attempted to counsel both Hazel and Colin to stay away from each other. Little did he know, they already planned to stay away from each other for at least as long as it took for the investigation to steer away from them. The autopsy showed what Colin had planned, that Leslie and Trevor both died of carbon monoxide poisoning. Leslie had no injuries on her body to indicate she was forced into the back of the car, and the sedatives in her system were at therapeutic doses. Trevor had a few small abrasions and a cut on his lip, These were easily explained by Colin's story that he and Trevor had a scuffle the night before Trevor and Leslie were found. Investigators readily accepted Colin's explanation. The rest of the investigation is marked more by what wasn't done rather than what was done. For instance, the hose from the exhaust to the car was only loosely attached and there was a kink in the line. But the police didn't test to see if the hose could have filled the car with lethal levels of carbon monoxide in that position. No fingerprints or other forensic testing was done. Colin, who had a bump on his forehead, was not photographed. Six weeks after the murders, Colin was sure their cover-up was a success. The police did catch him lying about the nature of his relationship with Hazel, but they still didn't seem to suspect a murder had taken place. Colin was at enough ease that he began seeing Hazel again in secret. But there was one last barrier to their freedom. The inquest. The inquest began on May 14, 1992, a year after the deaths. Colin was confident he could convince the inquest that Leslie and Trevor had committed suicide. He had convinced the police after all. But Hazel wasn't so confident. She had been struggling to keep it together over the last year. She frequently dreamed of her dead husband. She was terrified she would be caught and her children left without any parents. Colin testified before the inquest with the story he had prepared and his confidence carried him through. Hazel shook as she testified, but she stuck to her story. She last heard her husband talking to Leslie in their living room around three or four in the morning. She never saw her husband alive again. Colin's confidence was founded. When the inquest ended, 
the deaths were ruled suicides. No more investigation would be done. With the police investigation out of the way, Colin was eager to turn the page on his marriage to Leslie. His children were six, four, two, and eight months when their mother died, and Colin wanted Hazel to take Leslie's place. The first task was to help the kids forget Leslie. He took down pictures of her. If he overheard the children talking about her, he would stop them. The sooner they forgot about their mother, the sooner they could move on with Hazel, like he had. This disregard for his children's feelings over the loss of their mother is in line with Colin's later diagnosis of narcissistic personality disorder. A key characteristic of this disorder is a lack of emotional empathy. Unless prompted to try to imagine things from someone else's perspective, narcissists do not see other people's feelings as valid. In his head, Colin's children should move on because he moved on. But Hazel continued to struggle with the guilt over taking Trevor away from their children. The guilt was particularly unbearable after she and Colin had sex, worse than when Trevor was alive and she was cheating on him. She wanted to stop sleeping with Colin entirely, but that was easier said than done. With her permission, Colin began sedating Hazel before sex. This way, she could relax and forget her guilt. It worked. In fact, sometimes she barely remembered the sex at all. Three years after the murders in 1994, Colin was eager to finally marry Hazel. She had put him off a number of times before. It was too soon after Trevor's death. She wasn't ready. But after three years, Colin felt enough time had passed. He began looking at dental practices that were for sale in Scotland. They could move away from Northern Ireland and start over where no one knew their past. Hazel continued to resist. She would lose her widow's pension from the police. And what about blending the families? Mothering two children was hard enough. How was she going to manage Colin's four little kids on top of that? When she wasn't putting him off, she was trying to end things with him. But every time she did, Colin's persistence, flattery, and charm would win her back. In 1996, Hazel saw her way out in a man named Trevor McGauley. Hazel began seeing him behind Colin's back, and then more openly. She knew there was one thing Colin wouldn't tolerate in a partner. It was, oddly enough, infidelity. But Colin wasn't going to go quietly. One night while Trevor was at Hazel's house, Hazel walked over to a back window and let out a shriek. Trevor raced over. He looked out to the tree line where he saw a man standing in the shadows. It was Colin. He was watching the house. Trevor's instinct was to chase him off, but Hazel stopped him. She said that Trevor didn't know what Colin was capable of, so they ignored him, allowing him to watch from a distance. Trevor also saw Colin driving past Hazel's house a number of times, and once, Colin even called him to offer him money to stop seeing Hazel. And then, the phone calls and drive-bys suddenly stopped. When Colin Howell met someone else. 
In late 1996, Colin, then 37 years old, hosted a Christian singles mixer at his home. One of the attendees was 30-year-old Kyle Jorgensen. Kyle was an attractive single mother who had just moved to Northern Ireland from the U.S. She had been in an abusive marriage for four years and was looking for a new start for herself and her two children. She was studying Irish history at the University of Ulster in Coleraine and trying to find herself after her disastrous marriage. She was young, pretty, and vulnerable. Perfect for Colin Howell. Up next, Colin begins a new relationship, and things begin to unravel. Now back to the story. When 37-year-old Colin Howell met 30-year-old Kyle Jorgensen in 1996, he was upfront about his behavior during his first marriage. He had cheated on his wife, and it led to her death. But he was a new man now. He had sought and received God's forgiveness, and he was ready to finally move on. Kyle was taken with Colin and his adorable children. Within seven months of meeting, Colin and Kyle were married with the baby on the way. But blending their families meant Kyle had to drop out of school at the University of Ulster. Colin expected her to stay home and care for their combined seven children, as well as keep up with the housework. She was disappointed to leave her education behind, but it was worth it for their family. One night, over a year after they married, Kyle cleared the table after dinner and then sat on the couch to feed her new baby boy. He had been born ill and Kyle cherished these quiet moments at home to bond with her new little one. However, Colin had something besides the new baby on his mind. As he later stated, he couldn't deceive Kyle any longer. He'd spent an entire week thinking about how and when to tell her. He asked for her full attention and confessed to a double murder. Stunned, Kyle blurted out that he needed to call the police. Colin agreed that he had to confess. It was the right thing to do, but just not quite yet. He needed time to sell his dental practice. He had to arrange things financially so that she wouldn't be stuck with seven kids and all the bills on her own. After all, Kyle didn't even have a job. Certainly, she didn't want him to leave her with that burden, would she? Please, he begged, just give him time to arrange for the family financially, and then he would turn himself in. Kyle agreed to give Colin what he wanted, time, but only a few months. Both of their parents were coming to visit in September of 1998. He could ask their forgiveness in person and then turn himself in to the police. With the timeline set, Colin claimed he approached two people about selling his dental practice, but it didn't go anywhere, and Colin made no further efforts. It looked like Colin was trying to put off turning himself in. His career was taking off, and he had a beautiful family filling the pew at church. People looked up to him. While no one would want to lose these things, Colin's self-worth was wrapped up in how other people saw him. Being viewed as a criminal was something Colin couldn't let happen. Colin's first chance to delay his confession was when his father canceled the visit in September. Colin saw this change in plans as divine intervention. He'd have to wait 
until the next family visit. According to Colin, God sent another message during Sunday church services. A girl came up to him and told him that his sins were forgiven and forgotten by God. She then quoted 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 5, which reads, Therefore judge nothing before the appointed time. Wait until the Lord comes. He will bring to light what is hidden in darkness and will expose the motives of the heart. Colin took this sign, whether or not it really happened and presented it to Kyle. God was speaking to him and God told him that it wasn't time to confess. And Kyle accepted this. It's possible she accepted it because she believed Colin had received a message from God. But it's also possible she believed it because she wanted to. Colin's pattern of financial abuse from his marriage to Leslie continued into his marriage with Kyle. Just like with Leslie, he kept Kyle at home and without an income source of her own. He also controlled the finances, so Kyle was in the dark about how much money they had. Her fear over what would happen if Colin went to prison was paralyzing. So the pair stayed married and Kyle stayed quiet. Colin characterized the next several years of his life as God blessing him. He had paid off all those crippling debts from the proceeds of Leslie's estate. His business was growing. He was being featured in magazines for his cosmetic dental work, claiming to have worked on Queen Rania of Jordan. He and Kyle were blessed with four more children, bringing the total of their blended family to 11 children. They took vacations to Central America and enjoyed all the benefits Colin's wealth afforded them. He even had another affair in 2002, but Kyle let it go and they stayed married. God wouldn't bless him so much if he hadn't been forgiven, Colin reasoned. And this remained his belief until 2006, when things began to turn. Because 47-year-old Colin had credited God for his success in life, it looked to Colin like he was being punished when the blessings stopped. The first major event was the death of one of Colin's closest friends in August of 2006. He died after an infection from an untreated tooth abscess spread. As a dentist, Colin interpreted his close friend dying from a dental problem as a warning from God. Then eight months later, in April of 2007, Colin and Leslie's oldest son, Matthew, died in an accident. Matthew, then 22, was in St. Petersburg, Russia for a semester abroad. After he and his roommate got into a minor argument, Matthew ran into the slick hallway wearing socks. He slipped, went over the rail, and fell 40 feet down the stairwell shaft. He landed on the concrete below and died instantly. That was the roommate's story, at least. Colin doubted it. But in spite of Colin's suspicions that his son was pushed, authorities ruled it an accident. A fitting punishment for Colin Howell's sins. Matthew was the last word on Leslie's lips before Colin murdered her. It only got worse in mid-2008, when Colin was scammed by a fake investment opportunity in the Philippines. By December of 2008, Colin had cleared out all of his accounts and invested the equivalent of about $750,000 in today's money. Flat broke, 
he sent Kyle and the kids on a trip to Florida while he figured out what to do. Colin was fully convinced God was punishing him, and the only way to be free from God's vengeance would be to confess to all of his sins. Colin picked up the phone and called Kyle in Florida. He confessed over the phone that he had lost all of their money. Beyond that, Colin admitted he'd never fully broken off the affair from 2002. He'd started it up again in 2005 and had been cheating on Kyle for the last three years. When Kyle returned to Northern Ireland later that month, she ordered Colin out. He moved into a trailer that was not even large enough for his children to visit. Kyle demanded that Colin admit all of his sins to the elders of the church and to the police, and Colin agreed it was time. On the morning of January 29, 2009, Colin took three of his children to school and hugged them extra tightly. He watched them walk into the school building, not knowing if he would ever see them again. Colin then went back to the family home, where Kyle and the elders from their church waited for his full confession. The confession came at a slow drip. The elders patiently listened as Colin confessed to his previous affairs, an addiction to pornography, and the abortions he had arranged. When Kyle had called them, she made it sound like Colin had a massive secret to tell. This was all stuff they already knew, and they weren't sure why they were there. Colin then confessed to inappropriately touching multiple patients who were under sedation at his office beginning in May of 2004. He manipulated their arms to rub against his groin, and he cupped their breasts. In all, he had abused five women this way. That took the elders by surprise. This respected dentist took advantage of his position of trust, but it was nothing to what Colin said next when he admitted to murdering Leslie and Trevor. He explained how he did it, and he also explained how he had tricked the police. It wasn't only the confession that shocked the elders. It was the smugness Colin showed over having gotten one over on the police. 49-year-old Colin Howe was quickly taken into police custody. When confessing to the officers, Colin implicated Hazel Buchanan, his former mistress, in the murders. Later that same day, police went to 46-year-old Hazel's house. Hazel Buchanan was now Hazel Stewart, having remarried in 2005. She and her new husband, David Stewart, were living a few miles outside of Coleraine. David answered the door, and the officers asked to speak to Hazel. He told them she wasn't home. They refused to tell him why they were there, but insisted they would wait for her. When Hazel walked into the house 45 minutes later, she froze at the sight of the police. She had feared this day since 1991. Hazel asked to speak with her husband privately, and then she went into custody without issue. Hazel agreed to speak to police, and these statements were recorded. She initially denied she had anything to do with the murders, but three days after her arrest, she began to crack. She admitted that she knew Colin had a plan to murder Leslie and Trevor, but that she didn't know what it was. He had pressured her to go through with it, even though she kept trying to dissuade him. Then he called and told her he was coming by. 
she wished she never answered the phone. When Colin arrived, Hazel made another choice. She opened the door for him. Hazel told police that she was under Colin's control. She could have stopped the murders, but she didn't. Professor of Criminology David Wilson told the BBC that he believes this was a case of folia de, which means a shared psychosis. In cases such as this, one more dominant figure will manipulate the more subservient one. Colin fantasized about a world where he could kill Leslie as an act of mercy, and then he could move on with Hazel as the mother of his children as though nothing had happened. He manipulated Hazel into this delusion as well. Under Colin's spell, Hazel acted in a way she never would have on her own. Hazel was charged with two counts of first-degree murder and pleaded not guilty. Colin pleaded not guilty as well, but while Hazel was heading to trial, Colin was hoping a mental health evaluation could lead to a lesser charge like manslaughter. In May of 2009, About four months after his arrest, Colin was found in his cell, holding his head in his hands and rocking back and forth. He had just received notice that Kyle had taken their five children and returned to the United States. She was divorcing him. Colin was shocked and despondent. Kyle insisted he confess and go to jail, and that's what he did. She was supposed to stand by him, she was supposed to forgive him. Worried about his deteriorating mental state, the prison moved him to the hospital and labeled him a suicide risk. Carlin hardly slept, and he was agitated. He claimed he was being followed and harassed while in prison. His paranoia was off the charts. During this mental breakdown, psychologist Dr. Helen Harbinson met with Colin. She wrote in her report that he believed he had an important mission and God was attempting to destroy him because people thought his destruction would save the world. He wasn't sure if he was Noah and meant to save a few or Moses and meant to save many. Either way, he was being sacrificed by God. Dr. Harbinson wrote that Colin's belief he was being persecuted was rooted in his belief that he was exceptional and important. He was not fit for any further questioning by police at that time due to this psychotic break. But then, a month later, when Dr. Harbinson met with Colin again, she found him more focused and less paranoid. It was as though he had had a miraculous recovery. As it turned out, Colin's psychotic break was largely exaggerated. He was dealing with mental health issues, but he thought if he made them bigger and more dramatic, he could mount a psychiatric defense. His recovery was just him deciding not to go through with this tactic. Colin did still hold the sincere belief that God was punishing him for his sins through the loss of his friend, his son, his fortune, and now his second wife and younger children. He claimed his motive for confessing was to stop the punishment But professor of criminology David Wilson told the BBC that he believed Colin's reasons were more manipulative than that. Colin was living in a trailer, completely broke, and on the verge of losing his marriage. Going to jail freed him from dealing with the fallout of all of that. From Colin's reaction to Kyle divorcing him, we see that he truly expected the confession to save his marriage. 
In all, three psychologists examined Colin Howell. All three agreed he had narcissistic personality disorder with occasional mental disturbance. Even Colin's deeply held religious beliefs could have stemmed not from faith, but because the church met his needs for attention and control. Colin lived a fantasy life where he was honored and even revered by women, church elders, and patients. He believed himself to be exceptional, and that led him to take chances that other people never would imagine they could get away with, such as staging a suicide scene. A personality disorder is not grounds for a psychiatric defense, so in November 2010, Colin pleaded guilty to both murders. The 51-year-old received a life sentence without the possibility of parole for 21 years. This plea came just in time, too. Hazel Buchanan Stewart's trial was set to start in just three months, and Colin Howell was the star witness. On February 7, 2011, the jury was sworn in at Colerain Crown Court for the trial of Hazel Stewart. It was a spectacle. People waited outside the courthouse for upwards of two hours, just hoping to get a seat at the trial. Hazel's children were in attendance to support her. While they struggled with their mother's knowledge of their father's murder, they believed Colin was the sole guilty party. The prosecution's star witness, Colin Howell, took the stand against his former lover on February 14, 2011, Valentine's Day. Colin provided graphic details of their relationship, including the information about drugging Hazel to have guilt-free sex with her. He said he hoped to avoid making all of this public when he pleaded guilty, but since Hazel was choosing to have a trial, he had no choice but to testify honestly. In their 12-hour cross-examination of Colin Howell, the defense tried to paint Hazel as naive and vulnerable. They confronted Colin with Hazel's accusations that he threatened her and her children if she didn't help him. Colin denied this. Hazel had helped him because she wanted to. She wanted her husband dead. Hazel's attorney pushed back that the real motive was money. Colin was able to pay off a lot of debt with the money he inherited from Leslie's estate. It was no coincidence that Colin planned the murder of his wife days after her father had died and left her a large inheritance. The defense accused Colin of testifying to get revenge on Hazel for leaving him all those years ago, but Colin stood firm through the entire cross-examination. Hazel did not take the stand in her own defense. The police interview tapes were played, and those spoke for her. The jury heard Hazel admit to police that she knew Colin was there to kill Trevor and that she did nothing to stop him. On March 2, 2011, the jury turned in a verdict after just two and a half hours of deliberation. Guilty on both counts of murder. At sentencing, the judge said that Hazel was attracted to the excitement Colin offered her. Colin may have persuaded her to participate in his plans, but she chose to play her part. Hazel was then sentenced to life with no possibility of parole for 18 years. As of 2016, all of Hazel's appeals had been denied. Her children and husband 
have stayed by her side and visit her regularly. But fate was not done with Colin Howell. Of Colin's surviving ten children and stepchildren, all but one refused to speak to him. Colin will be 72 years old before he is eligible for release. Due to the longevity of his ancestors, he felt confident he would be a free man one day and would have a decade or more to enjoy his large health services pension. But after he pleaded guilty to indecent assault for the abuse of his sedated patients, he was stripped of his pension. If Colin lives long enough to be paroled, he will be released from prison completely broke and largely alone. As a man willing to kill not once, but twice to be with a woman he loved, not much could be worse. If you're interested in learning more about Colin Howell and Hazel Buchanan, among the many sources used for these episodes, we found Derek Henderson's book, Let This Be Our Secret, extremely helpful to our research. Thanks again for tuning in to Crimes of Passion. We'll be back Wednesday with another episode. You can find more episodes of Crimes of Passion, as well as all of ParCast's other shows, on Spotify or anywhere you listen to podcasts. Several of you have asked how to help us. If you enjoy the show, the best way to help is to leave a five-star review. Don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. We'll see you next time when true love meets true crime. Crimes of Passion was created by Max Cutler, is a production of Cutler Media, and is part of the ParCast Network. It is produced by Max and Ron Cutler, with sound design by Michael Langsner. Production assistance by Ron Shapiro and Paul Mahler. Additional production assistance by Maggie Admire and Carly Madden. Crimes of Passion is written by Charlie Worrell. I'm Lainey Hobbs. <laughs>